the way in the Old Testament, so if you want to start looking that up uh, without looking like you don't know your way around the Bible, that's fine. If you want to uh, dive in looking for that, or if you're cheating and using a tablet or a phone, you can find it really quickly, can't you? Uh, in just a moment, we're going to turn to uh, Esther chapter 4, but before we do, I just want to give you a, a little bit of context. Has anyone here ever had a letter from the Queen? None of you are old enough yet, are you? I'm having a look around. I don't think anyone looks old enough. Uh, I've not, unfortunately, had a letter from the Queen, but I'm told that she signs her, her personal letters with the words, Your Servant, Elizabeth. Isn't that lovely? Uh, and because of that, she's kind of earned the nickname, if you like, or, or the title, uh, The Servant Queen. And in everything that's been said about her this weekend, that, that's really come through, her desire to serve. Uh, in fact, no matter what people seem to think about royalty or, or monarchy or this royal family in general, she seems to be held in, in very high esteem because of this heart to make a difference and, and to serve, to, to meet people uh, and to share with people. So I want to borrow that title this morning, The Servant Queen, and I want to dive into this story of this servant queen uh, in the book of Esther. Now, before we read chapter 4, uh, I'm just going to tell you a little bit of the story. Uh, we're going to dive into some of the context then we'll read the passage. Uh, it'll take me a while to set up the context, so please don't think that I'm just sort of cheating, using preaching time when I should be using reading time. I know this is a quite a long introduction. It won't take as long then uh, after we've come to the passage. So the story of Esther in the Old Testament, a fantastic story, just 10 chapters long. It's one of the only books of the Bible that does not mention the name God or Yahweh, or the Lord, once. And yet, as you read it, his presence is implied. He's seen, not front and center, but kind of behind the scenes, moving strings, moving people to the places that they need to be. The, 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 the main characters of the story are, are these four people. Uh, there's the king, Xerxes. There's Esther herself. Uh, there's the king's right-hand man, Haman. Uh, and then there's Esther's uncle, uh, her adopted guardian, uh, Mordecai. We're going to start with thinking about the person of King Xerxes. As kings go, Xerxes was super impressive. His kingdom is, is massive. He has 127 providences, which back in the day is, is huge. It's absolutely massive. Asia, parts of Africa and modern-day India are, are all part uh, of this uh, incredible kingdom that Xerxes oversees. Xerxes has governors. He has authorities in all over the world. He's got fingers in so many pies. And yet, the way in which we're introduced to Xerxes, although he's an impressive man on a kind of political sort of status level, is that he's deeply insecure. He's a real show-off. It's interesting, isn't it, that people who need to show off a lot are actually often deeply insecure and kind of the poster boy for this, really. Uh, example, prime example number one is, is King Xerxes. And in chapter 1, he, he's trying to show off. Uh, and so in chapter 1 alone, we read of three big feasts, three big parties. Now, some of the context will be hard for us to imagine today. And I know for many of us today, to try and imagine a leader who's mainly known for having parties is going to be difficult. But if you could try today to engage your imaginations. Sorry about that. That was a little dig. Uh, and uh, so he's having this, this big party. The first one in chapter 1 lasts 180 days long. Anyone been to a party that long? 
I mean, there's many weddings I've been to where I find myself looking at my watch uh, in the evening, but I've never been to one that lasted nearly six months long. Uh, and everybody's invited to this. Now, you would have thought maybe at the end of the, all that showing off, all that partying, that he would have been exhausted, that that part of him, that part of his nature would be satisfied. Not so. After that, he has a seven-day party just for the capital, the citadel of, of Susa. Uh, and again, it's this lavish thing. He, he, he decorates the place. I mean, we think the bunting looks nice. It's nothing compared to what Xerxes goes for. Uh, he has wine served in gold goblets to everyone that comes, and the whole capital city is welcome to this. And that's not enough for him. Every gold cup has to be different, has to be bespoke, has to be unique. Uh, this is partying on a lavish scale. Uh, his wife, the current queen, Queen Vashti, is also having uh, a party for those seven days with, for the women uh, of the city. That's in the palace, this is in, in the courts. And Xerxes has this idea. He thinks to himself, I'm showing off all my prized possessions, but there's one possession I haven't yet shown off, my wife. And so he sends a whole bunch of people to go and get his wife and say, come on, let, let, let's show you off uh, in this party. And again, I know that we'll struggle to imagine that men will try to enhance their own image by marrying young, beautiful people uh, and showing them off. But this is what's happening. Surprisingly, Vashti does not see this as a great romantic gesture. She's not been invited to share something of her thoughts on the current economic climate or to share something of her intellect or her leadership or her gifts. She's come because he thinks she's nice to look at. For him, that might have been a huge compliment. For Vashti, not much so. And in this moment, she decides, no. Enough is enough. I do not fancy joining my husband and his lads after they've been partying for seven days to be paraded by them. Amazing as that sounds, she did not like the thought of that. And so she says, no. Which in the context, in the culture of the day, is absolutely huge. It, it's massive. So then King Xerxes has time to reflect and think, well, perhaps I was being unwise. Uh, perhaps I could perhaps understand why she would not want to come. Well, no, not so much. Actually, he's deeply offended by this. Uh, and one of the things about people who are insecure is they cannot make a decision. And he, he doesn't know what to do in this situation. So he makes it a matter of state. And he gathers his advisors around him and says, what are we going to do about my wife? She won't come and show off in front of my friends. He thinks, I haven't sort of egged this cake enough yet. So he decides to tell them, if the women in the kingdom hear that my wife wouldn't come to my party, it's going to be chaos. All these wives are going to start disobeying their husbands. There's going to be civil unrest. There's going to be a women's revolution. And so she must be made an example of. Bonkers, absolutely bonkers. And so she is disposed. She's got rid of. She's told, you cannot appear before the presence of the king again, which is kind of interesting that that's the only punishment they could think of, and that was kind of her crime in the first place. And so then the king says, well, what am I meant to do now? He'd, that's the one kind of recurring theme through the book of Esther. Xerxes never knows what to do, and so he calls his advisors back around him. And someone comes up with an idea. Let's hold a Miss Persia pageant. Let's find the most beautiful woman uh, in the whole place, and she can marry you, and she can be your new wife. And then we have these lovely words in the book of Esther. This proposal pleased the king. 
He was quite happy with, with that idea. Uh, and so they announced this big kind of nationwide search. I mean, forget X Factor. Nationwide search for the new queen. Every province has a beauty pageant of one person from all of the 127. Uh, one person wins and is sent to the palace. Uh, of those people then, they have a year to prepare for meeting with the king. A year. I mean, talk about pressure. It was kind of an extreme makeover in the ancient world. Thankfully, you know, liposuction and plastic surgery hadn't been invented, but everything they knew how to do, they did. Has anybody ever spent a long time getting ready for a date? Anyone ever spent longer on a date? No, Mike, you haven't. I'm amazed. Absolutely. Anyone ever spent longer on a date than they did than the actual date itself? Anyone had more fun preparing for the date than they had on, on the date? Twelve months. Six months of one type of beauty treatment, six types of another. And then there's the pressure of meeting the king for the first time. I mean, if somebody doesn't like you after a year of preparing for the date, it's probably, probably not going to happen. And out of all of this process, a woman called Esther is chosen. Seemingly random. Seemingly just one beautiful person. The Bible tells us, and this is how it's said in the Hebrew, that Esther was a hottie. Uh, she was a good-looking person. Interestingly, we're told this little detail. When the time came for her to meet the king for the first time, she could ask for anything she wanted, and she chose to take nothing else with her. There was something about her, her modesty, her humility, her simplicity, that actually attracted Xerxes uh, to, to him. But all the way along, she's been sort of coached, really. She's been helped along uh, by somebody who adopted her at a young age, her, her cousin, her guardian, Mordecai. And Mordecai says to her, don't tell them yet, don't let him know yet that you're, you're Jewish, that you're a member of the nation of, of Israel, because that will go against you, that'll create all kinds of issues. And so she's carrying this sort of secret, really, this deep part of her uh, is not on display. For everything that she's done about her appearance, she's keeping part of it back, keeping part of it secret. And so she, among all these people, is somehow randomly chosen to become the queen. Someone else to think about in this story, a guy called Haman. It's kind of interesting to, uh, to, to contrast him and Xerxes. If Xerxes' question is, how can I appear most powerful? Haman's question is, how can I be more powerful? He just wants more and more authority, more and more power. So much so that this obsession, this kind of, I read a great book a couple of years ago, The Undisciplined Pursuit of More. It's a great, great book. Uh, and again, he would be a poster boy for this. Of all the respect and authority that his name, his title commands, the fact that there is one person who will not bow down to him drives him insane. All he can do is think about this one person who happens to be uh, Esther's cousin, Mordecai. When he's traipsing his way, through the streets, and all these people are, are bowing down, paying homage and honor to him. Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to do that. And it enrages Haman so much. Over time, this anger in him grows and grows and grows. So he comes up with a plan, and he goes to King Xerxes with this plan, and says, there's a group of people 
in your nation. It's interesting, isn't it, in both situations, how to make people join them in their crusades. Both Xerxes and Haman make a personal issue a national one. There's a people that live in your nation that do not follow your laws, that do not submit to you. We should do something about it. Give me the authority to, to wipe them out. He actually brings the king a bribe. And this is how weak Xerxes is, how power-obsessed, how image-obsessed he is. He just agrees to it, doesn't even ask who these people are. And then he says, keep the money. He doesn't even care, he doesn't need the money at all. But it would have been about the tribute of a nation that Haman's offering to pay. And Xerxes says, keep the money, that's fine. Just, just do what you need to do. And so secretly now, there's a plot being hatched to rid the nation of the Jewish people. And we're not talking about just scattering them back into the nations. We're not talking about sending them home to the place where they've been torn and led away captive. We're talking about killing them. This is the world that Esther lives in. This is the climate, the culture that has suddenly emerged. And then there's Mordecai, Esther's cousin, her adopted dad, her, her guardian. Interestingly, when Esther goes to the palace and becomes queen, even then Mordecai can't let go of his responsibility for her. And he sort of camps out around the gates and waits there for her. Sometimes in the story, he sends messages back and forth to her. And this one day, he sat by the gate and he hears two of the king's servants talking. And they're hatching a plot, an assassination plot against Xerxes. And Mordecai thinks to himself, this is wrong. This is unjust. And so despite possibly being tempted to let it happen, he decides to report it. And so it's reported to Esther, who goes to the, uh, the authorities with this, and those two people are arrested. And one of the little details that was recorded for us is that this whole incident is written in the annals of the king. Kings like books to be written about them. And this was recorded in the book. And in that place, unbeknown to King Xerxes, Mordecai's name uh, is written. And so you've got this relationship between these two people, Mordecai on one hand, Haman on the other, that has escalated into a national crisis, into hatred on a, on a huge scale. Then there's this moment when Mordecai hears of Haman's plot, Haman's plans, and he gets a message to Esther. Let's turn to chapter 4 together. When Mordecai heard of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, which was a symbol of mourning. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he only went as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and females' attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to be put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hakath, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So he went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show Esther and explain it to her. 
And he told her to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hakath went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the peoples of the royal providences know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent this answer back. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arrive from, rise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows whether you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Mordecai brings this to Esther's attention together with all the details and all the evidence she needs. And the implication is clear. You've got to go to the king. You know, is there anybody else in this whole kingdom that has the position that you do? Surely you can go and talk to him. You, you've got to go. And Esther's reply is, is quite straightforward. You couldn't in these days just go into the king, even the queen, unless you were summoned. The penalty of that, believe it or not, was the death penalty. And things have changed since Esther and the king first met. It's been 30 days since they've been summoned together. She can sense that there's a different relationship now forming, a different feeling between them. And she's worried, I, I can't just go. I'll, I'll be killed. And these words from Mordecai, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It's amazing faith that Mordecai is showing here, isn't it? All I can see, Esther, the only plan I can imagine is that you're going to go and tell the king about this. But if that's not the plan, if God's got something else in hand, then, then that will happen. He will not abandon us. He'll not leave us. I might not be able to see the solution yet. I might not know where that provision or that help is coming from, but I know that it will come. But surely you've got an opportunity to do something. I don't know about you, I, I find those words really challenging. Because very often there are times when we have to trust God when we can't see. When we're called upon to rely upon his provision, even when it's not obvious. Even at times when there's a really obvious answer. Have you ever found yourself praying to God, God, why don't you just do that? Why don't you just do this? It's obvious to me. And then over time, as we learn to trust and wait and rely on him, there's another answer that comes. There's another hope that is deeper, that is richer, that is more powerful. Mordecai spells it out here. He, he doesn't say to Esther, you've got to go and, and, and speak to the king because God needs you to do this. And if you don't do this, he, his plans for us are scuppered. He says, God will rescue us. 
If it's not you, it'll be somebody else. But think about where you are, Esther. He says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Is it any coincidence, Esther, that at a time when it's the Jewish people facing annihilation, that the queen is Jewish? Come on, Esther, he says. Can you not see it? Can you not glimpse something here of a, of, of a bigger thing? Yes, God's name has not been written into this story, but surely it's implied on every single movement, on every single direction. God is, is doing something. See, Mordecai can see something that Esther at this moment has missed, that sense of, of impeccable timing. And God has got this impeccable timing, hasn't he? I've often heard people say that God is, is never late, nor is he ever early, but he's always on time. Waiting for God is, is hard, I know that. Waiting on God's help and his strength is, is really tough. Sometimes some of you share with me that there are seasons of your life when it's not like you can point to something and say, God isn't doing this for me, but there's just a sense in which that, that sense of his presence in our lives is missing, that he's more distant than we wanted, more distant than we expected, and, and we're waiting on that. We can trust God's timing. I had a, a, a dream this week. And again, I, I don't often remember my dreams. But uh, in this dream, I was riding a bike. This is kind of a fantasy for me. Riding a bike through a city. And as I'm riding a bike through the city, a, a van comes up next to me and overtakes me. I swerve to miss this van. So if you're a cyclist now, I'm identifying with you. I swerve to miss this van and fall off and hurt my leg. Wake up and think, gosh, that's a really strange, strange dream. Why am I dreaming about cycling? Holy Spirit, you're going to give me a bike? I don't know uh, what's going to happen. Uh, so I just, that was the dream. Then uh, I had to come down to meet somebody. And as I was walking home from church, there was a guy uh, that was sat by uh, the pharmacy, just, uh, just, you know, the one just by the little roundabout. Uh, and he just looked miserable. He just looked utterly down and depressed. And now, I know ministers are meant to be good at small talk, but I, I don't usually just go and speak to strangers. But there was something about this guy's face that was really sad. And so I just said to him, oh, you, you doing okay? And uh, we chatted. He'd been waiting on some medication, which hadn't come through. And he explained that he had a pain in his knee. And he said that he'd fallen off his bike and hurt his knee. And I said, this is going to sound crazy, but did you swerve to miss a van when you were riding through the city center? And he gave me this look like, were you driving that van? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no I, wasn't, I wasn't driving the van. I said, but I'm a Christian, and I believe that God speaks. <laughs> I had this dream last night that this van overtook me, and I fell off this bike. And I said, so I think I meant to pray for your knee. Is, is that okay? And he sort of laughs and says, that would be great. Uh, and so um, we were praying. He wasn't in a lot of pain while he was sat there, but any time he moved his knee, it, it clicked. And then after we prayed together, he was able to move his knee without it clicking. God's timing is incredible, is absolutely impeccable. I said to him, you do know I'm going to have to tell people in my church about this now, don't you? And he said, yeah, please do. <laughs> please do tell them. God's timing is, is awesome. It's absolutely in incredible. How, I, you know, sometimes 
I impress myself by being at the right meeting in the right place with the right notes with me. You know, that to me is a successful day. How does God arrange our lives? A dream here, a conversation there, a delayed bus here. It's a question I think that we should ask. This position I find myself in, for Esther it was not one that she chose, not one that she wanted. But seeing as you are here, Esther, is there something the Lord has called you to for such a time as this? Maybe that's a question God wants to ask us today. Mordecai can see something of the timing. Equally, I think he sees something in Esther that she has not seen yet. I heard about a story from a few years ago that was published. I checked the date. It wasn't April the 1st, but it could be apocryphal. It was about a bunch of defective Barbie dolls and, and G.I. Joe dolls. I know this will appeal to a lot of you. Uh, they, they mixed up in the factory the voice boxes. And so the um, Barbie dolls got given G.I. Joe's voice, uh, and the G.I. Joe's got given the Barbie dolls' voice. And so a bunch of boys on Christmas Day opened their GI and pulled the string at the back and heard it say, please brush my hair, I want to look beautiful today. And a bunch of girls opened the, the Barbie doll and pulled the string and heard it say something like, drop and give me 20. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and one of the things I love about this story is that Esther might have thought that her role now in life for the rest of her life was to be arm candy for a king. And she could have been happy with that to just be seen as a beauty queen. But Mordecai sees something deeper in her. God sees something deeper in her. Something that she hasn't even yet seen. Her first response is, I can't. I can't do that. And even when she does do it, she says, well, listen, pray for me. And get other people praying for you. I'm going to fast and pray for, for three days. And then she accepts this calling on her life. I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. A queen who stands out from the pages of history for not using her power and her position for her own advantage, but to serve others, to save others, to marshal it for the service of a greater king. One of the interesting things about this story, I think, is advisors. You've got King Xerxes, you've got Haman and other advisors pouring all this yes-man talk into his ear. You know, if the king's worried, if the king's anxious, if there's a crisis, what we need to do is massage his ego. That's our role. And their advice turns out to be pretty poor. And then you've got Esther, who's got a mentor in Mordecai, who will not just say the easy thing, but will challenge and call out something deeper. And as we look at that today, I'm sure there are times when there are times we, we call on people who will be yes-men for us, people who will tell us, yes, of course, you're perfectly justified to feel the way you do, to do the things you do. We, sit, we gather around us, don't we, these little groups of people, Team John, that'll sort of boost me up and massage my ego. But the person we need is Mordecai, who will step back and see what God is doing in a situation, see something deeper of God's purpose uh, around us and, and in us. I wonder who you listen to in your life. 
who the influence is, who the guiding voice is. This week on, on the blog, we published a bunch of, of quotes from the Queen uh, as an opportunity just to share them, if you want to, with, with people individually on social media, because she has taken opportunity after opportunity to speak of Jesus. This was a Christmas message back in 2014, where she said, for me, the life of Jesus Christ, the peace, Prince of Peace, is an inspiration and an anchor for my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance, and healing. Christ's example has taught me to seek to respect and value all people of whatever faith and none. That's interesting, isn't it? She doesn't respect and value people despite her Christian faith, but because of her Christian faith. She says, for me, the voice that guides me, the inspiration, the advisor, is Jesus. And Jesus is, is worth following. He's worth following because, like Esther, he did not use his power or his status to his own advantage. These words from Philippians, we're talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, you want to talk about sovereignty. You want to talk about majesty. You want to talk about power. Not just God of 127 providences. Not just God of some scraps of land and groups of people. Not just God of a planet. God of heaven and earth. Being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is our God, our servant and our king, our servant king and our king servant who, when the challenge was against us, when we faced a, a, a foe that we could not defeat, our sin, our shame, our death, our eternal separation from God, comes and stands in a place that nobody could have expected him to. It says, if I perish, I perish, that anyone who believes in me might not perish, but have everlasting life. These words are incredible. He humbled himself. There's plenty of situations in life that humble us, aren't there? It's quite different to humble yourself. These are choices, see, that Jesus makes. He steps down from the throne room of the cosmos and enters into our space, our time, and our skin. And he doesn't come to take a seat on an earthly throne. He comes to face rejection and misunderstanding and hardship and ultimately to be lifted on a cross, to be crucified in our place, to take the punishment that, that we deserve. Interestingly, in Jewish culture, um, crucifixion was reserved for a certain type of person, and that person was a slave. 
It was an ultimately uh, humiliating act where you're lifted up, stripped, naked, beaten, black and blue, and left there to die a slave's death. That's why Paul underlines it here. He becomes obedient to death. That would be incredible in itself, that the God who created life would be willing to die. But this is not a nice, neat, comfortable death. Even death on a cross. Is there anybody else worth your loyalty? Is there anybody else worth following? This God becoming one of us and dying for us. This is our God, the servant king. So what I'd love us to do just for a few moments today uh, before we come to sing together is, is just to open our lives to God. I want to invite you just to bow your head before him today. And you might want to just hold out your hands before you as a way of holding your life before God symbolically as an offering to him today. And maybe there are some people here today who, who have never said yes to this offer of forgiveness, this offer of freedom, this offer of grace. And I want to give you a chance today. Jesus has done it all. He's paid the price fully. He perished so that you would not have to. He was forsaken so that you could be forgiven. They placed a crown of thorns on his head so he could place a crown of sonship and daughtership on yours. And so if you want to say yes to his forgiveness today, maybe for others this is something that you prayed a long time ago and that commitment, that nearness, that passion has, has drifted and you just want to recommit today. You want to come and stand in that place again today. I just invite you to pray this with me. I'll leave some space and you just might want to personalize this for yourself. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, I believe that when you died on the cross, it was for me. It was because of my sin and not yours. And that you have died my death, paid my price, and taken the punishment that I deserve. Forgive me, cleanse me, heal me. Come into my life. Today I make you my king, my Lord. Would you fill me with your spirit and give me the strength to follow you all the days of my life and to become like you and to live in and for your kingdom. The Bible tells us that if you've prayed that today, then the angels of heaven rejoice with you, and we rejoice with you as well. If you've taken that step, please don't leave without just sharing it with one of us. We'd, we'd love to stand with you and celebrate with you.
And I also want to leave us some space today to think about the little kingdoms of our lives, the little sphere of influence that we find ourselves in, and to ask, am I using my power, my position for my own kingdom, or am I using it to serve? My time, my gifts, my talent, my money, my emotion, my resources. Does it just all serve to build the little kingdom of me? Or am I seeking to serve Jesus in serving others in his name? So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to us.